So grab your Bible, the book of Ephesians. I, um, I went a little long first service. I'm going to try to cut this short a little bit. A wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, just a power-packed little book. I mean, one of the most powerful books of the New Testament. So filled with everything we need. You know, as Paul always writes in the first half of any of his epistles, he lays out theology for us. And he did that in this book in the first three chapters. Because it's in the first three chapters that he tells us everything that we need to know to be strong as believers and to live for Christ. Amen? I mean, stuff that you just have to just, you know, meditate on. Like in chapter 1. In the first part, chapter 1, verse 3, where he says that we have been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Y'all remember that? That God has given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places because of Christ. But that blows my mind. I can't get my mind around it. It's too much for me to even grasp that every possible spiritual blessing has been supplied and made available to me. Little old me because I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Isn't that something? Those are spiritual blessings, not necessarily in heavenly places, not necessarily earthly blessings, meaning that there are times when what we desire to happen here on earth may not happen. However, that does not negate the fact that every spiritual blessing I need is available to me. So when I lack wisdom, the Lord will provide wisdom. When I'm in a battle, a spiritual battle, the Bible reminds me that though I walk in the flesh, I don't war in the flesh. That's good news. Especially as a pastor, that means when folks is, you know, and an enemy's coming against me, y'all better watch out when I hit my knees because <laughs> the Lord is with me. And that's for each one of us. Amen. The Lord is with us. And not only that, we realize in chapter one that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, meaning that before the Lord created this ball of dirt that we live on and walk on, he already knew each one of us individually and every hair on our head before he ever began because he stands outside of time. He's not limited to it. Like we are. He's, he is the creator of all things, including time. So he could see the beginning and the end before he even began. And he still chose to go forward and let us become a part of this. Isn't that something? So he already knew you. That means that you can never be an afterthought. That means you can never be insignificant no matter what happens on this earth and what people on this earth try to make you feel like. You already were known by the beloved in heaven. And he had plans for you from the beginning, which is why it goes on to say in chapter one that we were predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Amen. Through Christ Jesus. In other words, he predetermined based on his foreknowledge that he was not only going to receive us to himself, but he was going to work in us with amazing plans that he has for each one of our lives. Our lives are so much more significant than we can imagine. That's why it goes on to say that we were accepted in the beloved, which is good news because sometimes we don't feel accepted. But in God, we are accepted and he is working on us. He is shaping us and molding us and conforming us to the image of his son that when this is all over, we'll stand before him in perfection. That is the process that he is currently working on. And then the Bible says that we were then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise once we believe the gospel. So as soon as you believe and were saved, he sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Not only are you filled, you are also sealed. I, I like that. That sound. I grew up in the country. That sound like a, a, a jar of preserves. <laughs> Filled and then sealed with the hot water to the pop, the thing pop, and then you know you got something for next winter. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's what I think about. You have been filled and sealed. That means that technically you won't leak. So that means the Holy Spirit, he won't leave you 
you might, you know, you might get a little dusty and rusty when you don't spend time with him, but he's not going to leave you. You follow what I'm saying? Yes, you are an eternal living spiritual being now, which is good news because chapter two tells us that we were previously dead to God, dead in sins and trespasses, but that he has made us alive, quickened us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. So whereas you were dead, you are now alive. And that happened by grace through faith. Chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Y'all remember that? We're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. So therefore, we all come to God the same way, wretched, hopeless, and dead. And then he redeems us and pours his spirit into us, and now we have life. You see, the world has no hope, but those who belong to God have hope. We have a living hope, and it's that hope that pulls us forward. It's that hope that allows us to be thankful even for the life and the death of Diane Scott, who now is with the Lord and will be with the Lord one day. All of these things, and I don't have time to rehearse all of this. Y'all can go back and listen to all of that stuff on the website, which brought us to chapter 5. We need to pick it up today in verse 26, but we got to set the context. So let's just start reading around verse 18 so we have a good context for this. Y'all ready? Chapter 5, verse 18. Notice it says, And do not be drunk with wine, which is in dissipation, but filled with the Spirit. Now, if you were drunk last night, I didn't know. I don't know nothing about it. I'm just trying to set context. Somebody here might have been drunk last night and needed to hear this, okay? This is for you. Don't be drunk with wine, rather filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about it. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as Christ is, sub, excuse me, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. And we did learn there were some instances where his daughters are not to submit, not in abusive situations. And if you could go back and listen to that, that would be good for you. Um, but he goes on to say, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so, Lord, we do thank you this morning that you have allowed us to be in this place, and we know even as we rehearse the things we've already seen, we know, Lord, that it's not by chance or our own doing or wisdom or ingenuity that we have come to this place this morning and we sit in this room together. But it's according to your divine, eternal purpose and plan for our lives. And so we sit in this hour, your special hour, the first day of the week, the day that the church celebrates your resurrection and your victory. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us in this hour 
that you would take full advantage of it, Lord, that you would take away from our hearts and our minds the cares of this life, the burdens of this world, that you would remove the distractions from this room, and that you would speak to us individually as well as collectively, Lord God, doing the things that you need to do, whether encouraging and comforting or correcting and rebuking, that we would be changed, that we would leave this place different than the way that we came in. We love you. We thank you for all that you are doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. And so you remember from a context standpoint that all of this flows out of verse 18 through 19 where it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Or in other words, it means to make a, uh, uh, you know, allow the Holy Spirit to have its full work within our lives. In other words, our, our lives bear literally the fragrance of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And he talked a little bit about that. That was weeks ago. But he goes on to say in verse 20 that we should give thanks always for all things. Y'all remember that. I'm still reviewing. That verse is so convicting. I have to review it every week because that verse has taught me in just the last month just how awful I am. Now, how often I'm not thankful in certain situations about certain things and realizing I'm in sin when I'm not thankful. And that, isn't that something? We are to be thankful always for all things. We're not to be sourpuss, head down, complaining, whining. The Bible says do all things without complaining and grumbling. And it kind of gives a sense that we're not supposed to be fake. But as Christians, we are supposed to be thankful. And when we can't be, we need to hold our tongue, which we'll learn even more today. Because we might not need to say things that don't add and lend to that. Because we're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. So if we walk around grumbling and complaining in the world, they figure, man, it's all lost for them. They ain't got nothing. If we don't have joy, then there is no hope in the world. But as long as we are here, the light of the world, there is a hope. The gospel will go forth, and the example of it will be there, and that's us. Remember the Bible says that when he who now restrains is taken out of the way, and we believe that's the Holy Spirit within the church, when that is removed, there's nothing left for the earth but tribulation and destruction. Listen, verse 21, without taking a break, the same thought in the Greek, the same sentence in the Greek, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Remember we talked about that, y'all? It's a military term, which means that we're to fall or arrange up under one another in rank as though the body of Christ is like an army, if you will. And there's order to it so that we can move forward and, and, and accomplish the directive for which we were sent to accomplish, which is to glorify him, to make disciples, to love one another. You know, you follow me? All of these things we do. And so he began to talk about that. Then he flowed right from that into this section where he said, wives, submit to your own husband. And remember, I said this whole section, verses 20. One, really, all the way down to verse 33, verse 21 to verse 33, I called it Christian protocol. Y'all remember that? Many weeks ago, Christian protocol. And we're looking at it currently as it relates to the family in verse 22 through 23. We saw it as it related to the church in verse 21. Now the family, remember we saw the role of the wife in verse 22. I know the wives are hoping I don't review that. Really, the guys, you know, the guys are the ones upset with me now. Then we looked at the role of a husband, the beginning of that. This is part two today, and that is verse 23 through 33. And then when we come back next week, we'll look at plan for children in chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. We'll also look at Christian protocol as it relates to the marketplace or the employment arena in chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. And then we'll be done with that, and we'll look at spiritual warfare. 
We doing well, y'all. This is week 24. Y'all hanging in there? All right. Let's, we got to pick our study back up. Let's review what we looked at as far as the role of the husband. Verse 25, where we were last time, notice it says, husband, love, love your wives. I don't have time to review it all, but love your wives just as, notice it says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And so we looked at two things. We looked at, number one, husbands have been put in place by God as far as the function of the husband, remember, to provide godly love within the marriage union and the family. And remember, we describe what that love is. That's not the type of love that the earth that we use here in earth and in our English language. I mean, we love so many things and use the same word for it, right? I love tomatoes. I love pickup trucks. I mean, I don't know. I'm just pulling stuff out of the air here. I love, you know, whatever. You think about it, but it's a godly love. And a godly love is quite different. Remember, godly love is a love, listen, that is based upon a decision and is independent of the response of the person being loved. I didn't bring the actual definition I used in my notes today, but that's basically what it is. In other words, godly kind of love is that God made a decision to love us when we, we could care less about him. How do we know? The Bible tells us, Romans chapter 5, says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, right? So then godly love is a decision to love those who you want to love regardless of whether they even display any, any, God, any loving response back to you. Therefore, husbands are to love their wives based upon a decision that we made to take her as wife and love her. And it really doesn't matter how she responds to us because we are God's men and we have to have thick skin and we're going to love no matter what. And the way we do it is we demonstrate it because that's how Christ did it. Jesus didn't just say, I love you. No, he came and went to the cross. And so we demonstrate our love towards our wives through action. We talked about that already. And not only do we demonstrate godly love, but we also have a, in godly love, there is a godly sacrifice that goes with that. Look in verse 25 again. Notice he gave himself for. Remember the word in the Greek meant that he, to give yourself over into the hands of another. And that's what Jesus did. Remember Jesus says, listen, I got, nobody takes my life from me. I got the power to lay it down and to raise it up. Y'all remember when Jesus said that in the gospels? So therefore Jesus gave himself over to another to demonstrate his love for his bride, his wife, and he did it because he decided to do it. I mean, you got to think about it. There ain't nothing in us that's beautiful. I mean, why, why, would, why would, you know, and this is why Pastor Kevin could never be Jesus. Because if I had looked down and saw the mess, nah, nah, Father, I mean, you know, I don't see nothing down there to, to redeem. I don't, why, why, you know, and that's, that's, but Jesus looked and he said, ah, I see what I can redeem, what I can love, and I want her for my own. And so he came, he made a decision to do it, and that is what it's based on. And that tells us this, that I got to fulfill that decision. Things will change, circumstances will change, times will get tough. Marriage will be the most difficult thing that we will ever do on earth. But I made a decision to do it. I'm a Christian man, I will not desert my post, I will not fall short of completing my mission. I will love my wife. Guys, I got to come up with something that we can chant together. Y'all going to help me write it, guys? I'm saying I got to make it, I got to make it work for y'all. That's what we've been called to do. Now, we got to continue in this today. Uh, verse 26, let's pick it up. Now, he did all of this for a reason. Verse 26 tells us, notice in verse 26, that he might. 
Notice verse 27, that he might. In other words, he did all of this in order to accomplish something else. Notice verse 26 again, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So Jesus came from heaven to earth, took upon himself human flesh. God became a man because that was the only way he could redeem his bride because there was a requirement that blood be shed and the blood had to be shed by a kindred redeemer and he had to be perfect and without spot and blemish in order to qualify. And so therefore, we had this whole dilemma that man, a man had to die for the sins of man, but all men were sinners. Y'all know this, right? Therefore, the only way it could happen was there had to be a perfect man and the only way to have a perfect man is if God became a man. So we could have a perfect man and that perfect man could, who is kin to us through humanity but he's divine because he's God, could lay down a perfect life that has no spot, no blemish, no sin, and it qualified to pay for our sins. So God came down and he loved us and gave himself for us that he might then notice sanctify us, which is a beautiful word. It is an awesome word in the Greek. Hagiazo is, hagiazo is what it is. It comes from a root, hagias. I like the way it sounds, hagias. Hagias means to be the most holy thing. That's what hagios means. That's the root. To, that's the goal, to make it a most holy thing. But hagiazo means to render or acknowledge it that way, to separate it from all profane things is what it means. In the Old Testament, it was a whole picture of ceremonial purification that had to be dealt with because men were separate from God and couldn't draw close. Therefore, to get close in worship, we had to go through some stuff. And, and it's a whole lot of stuff as you read the Old Testament. We'll talk about it a little bit more as we go. But the point in sanctification is to take something and do something to it to set it apart from all of the things that you can deem it as the most holy, special, treasured thing. Does that make sense? So therefore, God came and loved us and gave himself for us that he can take us and separate us from the filth of the world. And set us apart as something that is most treasured by him in all of creation and all of the universe. And that's what the church is. That's what his bride is. That's what he's doing all of this for. That's why he died. That's why he's away preparing. That's why he's planning to come and get us. And that's why he currently is putting us through the process of sanctification here, working on us so that he can get us to the place he desires us to be. And he'll come and he'll get us. We'll talk about this. But then for the husband, we look at this text, and I have to be honest with you. I've read this a thousand times. I remember in the beginning of my marriage reading it and walking away, scratching my head. It's like, man, I'm done. You know, I'm, it's more than being inadequate. There is absolutely no way. I'm talking to God now. Early on in my marriage, I've been married a year. I'm like, what, what, what do you want me to do with this? You know, <laughs> has any man in here ever felt like that? Thank you. A few honest men. That's all we need, a few faithful. We get, we get there together. And looking at this, but there is an aspect to this as a husband that I need to begin to understand and apply in my marriage. And we fall short of this, guys. We do. And today is not, today is not about evaluating yourself with what you've done. It's about finding out what we should do and putting that into practice, okay? Because remember, Christianity is forward moving. Forgetting those things which are behind the good and the bad and the ugly, and pressing forward towards the goal, the high mark in Christ Jesus, right? So now all the guys in the room have potential now. So I am to, listen, I am to, 
<laughs> I am to set my wife aside, apart, as the most treasured thing in my heart and my life on planet Earth, with the exception of Christ himself. That's why I say on planet Earth. Therefore, the wife is to be the most treasured thing. Now we have issues. Because every guy wants a garage with a classic car in it that shines and sounds like it can, it can do something. <laughs> the best golf clubs, the best fishing equipment, and it goes on and on, the best set of tools. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, guys. I mean, you know, the RV, the boat, the, the, everything. You know, we just, our minds are in so many places. Yet, what we learn from Jesus is that the wife is actually to be the most treasured thing. And remember I told you that Jewish men, because this is Paul writing from a Jewish mindset even. That's why he's using words like hagias. Listen, the Jewish rabbis believe that when a man stood before God after he died and went to heaven, God's question would start with how he nurtured his wife did he bring up a family before God would talk about what he did down in the temple and what he did out in the community because God had commanded men to be fruitful and multiply. We have to understand, forget what the world says. Marriage was God's intent from the beginning. That's why we see in Genesis 2 him taking a man, developing a man, preparing a man, giving a man worth and value and responsibility and having a relationship with him before he created Eve so that that man could be prepared to be a leader of the most sacred union that God would have, which is the marriage union. That's why it's called God's holy institution, which he loves. So that was the way it was intended from the beginning. And this is why he cares so much, because he wants us to be like Christ. See, that's what we are learning, guys, is that we are the representation of Christ in the marriage union. Don't hold your head down. Lift your head up as a man of God, because God is going to do this work in us. We will not do this ourselves. Okay, you understand that, guys. Now, so he says here, that he might sanctify her. And you might say, well, Pastor Kevin, this is all good for Christ, but what about me? Verse 28 says, so husbands ought to love their wives. Remember I told you that word so is in like manner. So we're all called on the carpet to examine Christ with the church and then in like manner imitate him. Guys, that's basically what being a husband is, imitating of Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So it says that he might sanctify her, verse 26. Notice, and cleanse her. And I love this. Sanctify, though. I want you to understand this is Jesus' heart, even as in John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying, he used the same word, hegiazo, in John chapter 17, verse 17 through 19. Jesus, talking to his father in prayer, says, sanctify them by your truth. That's what he said to the father. He said, Father, sanctify my bride by your truth. Your word is truth. Then he says, as you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world now. And he says, and for their sake, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's giving us an indication of how to do this as husbands. And Jesus says, listen, my whole desire is that they be sanctified. And we're getting a glimpse as to how we do it with the word of truth. But then he says, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified. So husbands, here's the first role. How do we go about the business of imitating our Lord Jesus, setting our wife apart as this very special thing? Jesus says, I sanctify myself. Husbands, I submit to you that if you sanctify yourself by the word of God, you are more equipped to then 
bring your wife to this elevated place of being the most treasured possession, the most treasured thing on the planet in your heart and in your mind. Because the word of God washes the filth of the world away and it rewires our mind to be literally like Jesus. A husband said to me the other day, I'm praying that I have new eyes for my wife. I didn't ask him what all of that implied because I know God can do it. Guys, God can do that. You may have had a rough marriage. There's been some things, some stuff hurts. And I'm Pastor Kevin up here talking about me doing all this stuff and doesn't understand what just happened in my marriage and, and, and what's going on and how I feel today about my wife. Well, do you realize when you go into the word of God, it has a effect on you and it changes you and it can make things new again. I'll get into that in a moment. This sanctification is amazing. Paul, when he was teaching the Corinthians, said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he said the unbelieving spouse sanctifies the, uh, excuse me, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing one. How many of you have read that? Nobody, isn't that one of the most confusing verses? They don't believe. They're on their way to hell. You married to your unbeliever, they don't know the Lord, they're not saved, yet you know the Lord. Now, by the way, this verse does not condone y'all singles going out and marrying non-believers but if you find yourself in that situation after becoming saved there's something that happens in other words here's the thing the unbelieving spouse is somehow sanctified by the believing spouse meaning that the believer's presence listen the believer's presence puts the unbelieving spouse in a special place under the favor of God to some degree. Paul even says over in Timothy when they were debating about what foods to eat and what foods not to eat, and Paul's like, look, we're the New Testament church. We can eat whatever we want. He says because it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Y'all remember reading that? Somehow the word of God in prayer in the believer's life sanctifies the stuff that, you know, some people say you shouldn't eat. You know, some people don't eat pork. There's a lot of things, you know. We were in Columbia, and we went in this lady's house, and she was so excited that we had come in her house, these American missionaries, that she went in. I mean, you know, basically, it's a center block house with no windows. I mean, you know, and we're not supposed to be drinking the water as is. But we went in her house to invite her to this outreach that we were having down the street, and she was so excited. She, she went in her, her, her kitchen thing there and brought out these drinks. And the guys looked at me, um, one of them in the sound booth now, looked at me because I had strictly warned them about, about not drinking the water. And they looked at me and said, can we drink this? And I said, we absolutely must drink this because it's coming from her heart of love because she's excited that these American Christian missionaries are standing in her house. And she asked us to pray while we were there. I said, we sanctify this with the word of God in prayer, and we will not get sick, and we did not get sick. Amen? (laughs) Because I know it was made with water that we don't want to, you know, the place is called Agua Blanca, which speaks of dark water because there's a river that runs behind the place that is completely, oh, my Lord. But we sanctified it for the purpose of God, you see. In other words, sanctification is bringing all things under the power and the favor of God in our lives. Now, husbands, you got to understand, your wife, if she is a believer, she has a relationship with God, and God is already working in her life. And so, you know, you're not Jesus, and we understand that. But then there's a double covering that comes when a Christian man is covering his wife and sanctifying her in the word of God in prayer. And it's an it's, it's a added blessing to her because now not only is she already a daughter of God 
through salvation. But now, because she's called to rank herself up under your leadership, that submission, now you are taking that leadership role and being accountable to God for it, and she's double blessed. I remember the story of Sarah. Now, ladies, if your husband's not doing this, I'm just going to bless you for a moment. Y'all, I don't need to get into this. Y'all remember Abraham lied twice about Sarah being his sister. Y'all remember that? And when it, he did it in, with King Abimelech, roughly somewhere around uh, Genesis 20, King Abimelech had taken her into his uh, harem, if you will, but he hadn't gotten to her yet. You know, y'all with me? He hadn't gotten to it yet. That was a supernatural thing we find in the scripture. So God says to Abimelech in a dream that night, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I love it. Just like that, I'm going to kill you. That's what God said. Go read it. Y'all think I'm making this stuff up? Y'all know I'm telling the truth? I am going to kill you because you got a man's wife in your hand. And Abimelech's like, I'm innocent. I didn't know. And God says, I know you didn't know. That's why I kept you from touching her. Now you need to get her out of your harem or I will kill you. <laughs> her husband's a prophet and he'll pray for you and all that kind of stuff. I love that because Abraham was being a knucklehead, but Sarah submitted. So she was under the favor of God, protected by God. But remember, there are times when you don't submit, ladies. Remember that. Go listen to the previous studies. So that he might sanctify her. We're called to elevate our, li- our wives to the most treasured place in our lives. And, uh, and, you know, it can be difficult, but we, we don't want to run out of time here. So verse 26, not only that, he, he says that he may sanctify her and cleanse her. And that cleansing speaks of a ceremonial process of, of cleaning something and purging it of its impurities to make it ceremonially presentable so that it can participate in worship to consecrate or dedicate something. That's what that means. And in the Old Testament, they had to dedicate the utensils and everything that had to do with worship. Even those who served in worship had to be dedicated or consecrated before they could go into the presence of the Lord and worship. And so Jesus not only has set us apart, but then he's working in us, if you will, to consecrate us or dedicate us to his father to make us, if you will, to purge us of all sin and impurities. And so we see Jesus doing that. So to sanctify and cleanse her, but how does he do it? Notice what it says in verse 26, by the washing of water by the word. And this is what Paul is seeing. He's using the Jewish imagery of the Old Testament law to explain what Christ is doing. Because in the Old Testament, in order, listen, in order to go into the tabernacle and serve, a Levite had to be washed. He had to wash and cleanse himself. And as they did certain things within the tabernacle, they had to go to the bronze laver and they had to wash themselves between sacrifices to be clean before they can come back in. And we see that even in the New Testament, there's cleansings that had to take place. Um, There's all of that kind of stuff. They had uh, these big uh, stone things of water that were there for all the guys to come in and cleanse themselves, those who came in to worship. The interesting thing here, he says, the sanctifying cleanser by the washing of the water by the word well, what he says here, this word he uses at the end of verse 26 is the Greek word rhema, which is different than logos. How many of you have heard of logos? Logos speaks of the word of God that has been uttered from his mouth, but written down for us. So you have the logos even in your hands. And here he's talking about the rhema, which is the word uttered even by man. It's the spoken word. So he's saying here that Jesus is doing this by the washing of the water by the word. 
that he speaks, just as Jesus says in John 15, 3 on your screen. Jesus says in John 15, 3 to his disciples, you are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. I love that. And there he actually uses uh, the logos, which I like. And, and so he's actually saying that I have washed you by speaking the word of God to you. And because you believe in faith, you are therefore clean. I love that. John chapter 6, verse 33 on your screen. It says, the spirit who gives life, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. I love that. The words that I speak, Jesus says to you, are spirit and they are life. Here he's saying rhema. In other words, Jesus is saying that the words that he speaks are in fact equal to, if you will, the power of the spirit in our lives, washing us, strengthening us, and giving us spiritual life. This is what Jesus is saying now. As husbands, we obviously cannot make our wives spiritually clean. But there is something that we have to grasp here that the Lord desires us to understand, guys. And it's two things. One, listen, we teach this in marriage counseling. Because a lot of guys struggle. Listen, a lot of guys struggle with the fact that their wives know the word better than they do. And that's, a, that's you know a common thing within the body of Christ. And some guys don't know how to handle that. Um, and I'll be honest with you, the fact that she knows the word and you don't is not a bad thing. It shouldn't be that way. But you, you got to look at it today where you are. It's not a bad thing because you two are one and she knows the word. And ladies, don't. How can I say this? Do not belittle him with that because if you do you'll never get from him what God desires for you to get from him you are a help me and you got to pray through that and find a way okay God and look sometimes my wife comes at me with stuff that she didn't got from the Lord and I feel all envious because she be up at five o'clock praying and reading and she come bring some old deep stuff that I don't even understand and I'm like man Lord you didn't show that to me when I read it you know <laughs> but she's excited to tell me about it and the Lord is like, well, listen and talk with her about it, you know, and reassure her. You know, so, guys, you got to find a way to engage. So there's two ways of doing this. One, first of all, understand this. The Bible says that life and death is in the power of the tongue. That means that there's power in your words, men, even more so than the ladies. I've learned, and my wife has had to caution me at times, my voice, because I have a man voice. And so a man voice, when uttered too loud, causes some problems. And the, look, the, the wives, they can yell all day long and fuss. As soon as we yell, everything changes. Tears are flying. The neighborhood wakes up. The dogs are barking. Folks is calling 911, you know. We can't even yell because our voices are powerful. You know, we have to be careful with our girls. We have to be careful with our voices, you know, because we are representations of Christ in the house. So therefore, guys, here's what it is. The Bible also says a word fitly spoken is like, jewels like apples of gold even proverbs says that so here's what happens life and death is in the power of the tongue meaning that the husband has the power to sanctify his wife elevating her to this place of special treasured place and position with your words you can encourage her build her up empower her or you can tear her down and discourage her and, and, and really calls her to be a shell of the woman that God desires her to be. And so literally, we, 
if you will, guys, we can do so much in our, our wives' lives through the words we choose to use. What that means is every word that comes out of your mouth to your wife needs to be thought out and prayed out or needs to come from a heart that's saturated in the word and prayed through so that it can bless her. And so that means that you might want to pray and ask the Lord to help you and give you the words that you need to speak to your wife because your words mean so much. And, and you know, I, I've, through my marriage, there have been times when I just forget this and then I get convicted. You know, and I realize because one of the issues is as men, we're just reserved sometimes and we just we, we're not the communicators our wives are. Our wives are excellent. Well, they're at least frequent communicators. <laughs> right. They, they, they at least they communicate. Right. And sometimes we don't. And so then if we don't, then we're withholding something that she needs. She needs something from us verbally that reassures her. And I miss this sometimes. And when I find out, oh, she just wants, if you will, to be, uh, if you will, uh, reassured, uh, heard, and encouraged. And we can use our words to do that in, in, in a way that would just cause her to blossom and flourish even more. And be even more dynamic as a woman than she already is. And so this is part of what we are called to do. But it also means that if we do like Jesus, if we sanctify ourselves first, then the words that are coming from us are going to be life-giving, spirit-filled, saturated in the word, words that come forth and bless our wife. Amen? It's not about you being a Bible scholar, guys, and sitting at home teaching a Bible study. That ain't going to always work, especially when she's busy doing stuff anyway. Bible studies are good. You should have those together. You should have your times where you and your wife discuss the word, but make it natural. Make it easy. Don't try to formalize the thing and put her to sleep. <laughs> make it conversational, okay? Just enjoy the time talking about things and the word. Bring the word into every conversation with her. And that happens the more you spend time in the word as we're running out of time here. So notice he says that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Now, this is good news. What does he mean he might present her to himself? Well, it, it, in the Greek, it implies that he might have her right beside him in a honored position, having fellowship and intimacy with her, showing her off. You get it? That's what it really means. Now, we see that in the scripture. Jesus is doing that. He's then going to make a place for us. He's going to come get us. We're going to have the marriage feast. And then we're going to come back with him riding shotgun, clothed in white arraignment, and riding on horses. And he's going to come back showing us off as he just destroys the Antichrist and his army and, you know, and, and subdues everything. In other words, it's, it's about, guys, placing her in a position of honor all the time, showing her off. We have work to do to present her to himself a glorious church. Notice not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, meaning that he's going to present her perfect at the end. She ain't perfect now because look at us. We're part of the bride. Just look around. We ain't there yet. But he's going he's gonna to finish this work, and we're going to be presented perfect, that she may be holy and without, without blemish. One pastor years ago, he said he was going to wash his wife and feed her with so much, much, much word that she was going to be obese. And when Jesus called him in for the beam of seat, he was going to say, roll in, boys. That's what he used to say all the time. Just so filled with the word of God. Anyway, I thought it was funny when he did it, but... Verse 28 says, so husbands ought to love their wives. We're almost out of time. Stay with me. So husbands ought to love. And so in other words, it says in like manner is what it means in the Greek. Husbands ought to love their wives as they are notice their own bodies. Let's read through this swiftly and I'll explain. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's huge. Underline that, guys. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourish and cherish it. You ever hit your thumb with the hammer, you don't hate yourself. You respond in love. You do something with it. You cut yourself. I cut myself in the kitchen all the time. I don't know why. You know, I do something with it. I, I, I put something on it. I, I nurture it. It nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, his flesh, his bones. Verse 31, for this reason. Now, verse 31 is quoting Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus also quotes this in Matthew chapter 19. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in other words, marriage is a picture of a union. You got to think about this. When God created everything, the heavens and the earth, and even man and woman, he created man and woman equal in his image. But you got to think about it. God, on the first five days, he created everything else. On the sixth day, he created man. He created everything out of the elements of the earth. He took a scoop of dirt in his hand and shaked it and chiseled it and made a man. A man, it was a, there's a corpse, but it was, it was had abs and biceps. It was chiseled. And then he breathed life into it, and Adam came alive. Y'all know that, right? It was amazing. And so, therefore, our bodies are made up of the same elements of the earth. You know, the same whatever 17, 18 elements of the earth, it, that's what our flesh is made up of. But for the first time in creation, Genesis chapter 2 describes something when God said it's not good for man to be alone. So he put Adam to sleep and he took a rib. Y'all remember that. And from that rib, he made a woman. So for the first time, God chose to make something unique and different. And Adam called her woman. In other words, God made her from Adam. This is a question I always ask in marriage counseling. Why? Well, Adam understood it when he looked at her. Notice what he says. He says that, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's what Adam said. He looked at her and he didn't see because, you know, God could have took some dirt. He could have shaped a woman. I won't describe her. He could have breathed life into her, brought her to Adam, says, here's your wife. And Adam would have been excited. Whoa, someone who finally you know, kind of is made like me. Wonderful. But when Adam looked at Eve, he didn't just see a woman made. She was different because she was a woman. Yeah, she was a woman. But he saw even in her his own reflection because they had the exact same DNA. There were some similarities. When he looked at her, he saw for the first time, not only a woman, but a woman that came from me. In other words, she's not a different person. She's a part of me. Why? Because God desired Adam to understand and for all of us to understand that marriage in God's eyes is a, is a union that is sealed, a one flesh union. And Adam saw Eve as part of himself and God desires a husband to see a wife as part of himself. That's why he says here that, uh, that a man shall love his wife as himself, the end of verse 28. In other words, you should make every decision in your life based upon how it's going to impact your wife because she is a part of you and reflection of your leadership. Just like you're not going to put your hand on something hot because you know it's going to burn. And therefore, you will do the same in how you treat your wife. Now, we've got to finish this up. So verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they, the two should become one flesh. Now, in the creation, everything was perfect in Genesis chapter 2. You had God the Father... You had Adam, his son, and the gift, the bride, the wife that was given. She's double covered, if you will. 
and you had a perfect union. In fact, Genesis 2.25 is the goal for every marriage. Genesis 2.25 says they, that the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And it has nothing to do with sex. It speaks to the fact that they were in a perfect union and they could be completely open and vulnerable with one another and be, be protected. In other words, the marriage union is the one place on earth where a man can open up and be vulnerable before somebody and not have to hide and be insecure because his wife is not going to tear him down and make him feel weird. And likewise, the woman, marriage is supposed to be the one place on earth where she can open up to someone and pour everything out before her husband and it be protected and cared for and not exploited or made hurt because the world is, is, is messed up, isn't it? So there's got to be safety in marriage. And that's why we have to protect marriage. And marriage was perfect. Three beings, God, Adam, Eve. It didn't get tricky until the fourth person came in. And that was the serpent in chapter 3. And we got to be careful. That's why he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, I didn't say that the mother-in-law was a serpent. I didn't say that. (laughs) And the two should become one flesh. But what I am saying is this. Listen, marriage is a self-contained, healthy organism when it's God, a man, a genetic man, and a genetic woman. That's, that's the only way you can have marriage. And whatever the world is doing doesn't qualify as a biblical marriage. So it's not recognized in the eyes of God. However, so what you have to have then is a God, a man, and a woman together in this union that is sealed, and it needs to be protected from everybody else. And for this reason... Mama and mother-in-law, and I'm going to focus on mama because dads usually stay out the way for the most part anyway, but mamas need to be kept at bay. She needs to be kept at bay. I tell the young people, the youth, when I meet with them sometimes on Fridays, I say, look, if he got to run to mama and you see that before you get married, then let mama have him. (laughs) And you go find a godly man that don't have to run to mama. Mamas, you bring him up. And then you send them out and list them in the army of the Lord. And so when a man leaves his mother and father's house and he's walking with the Lord then, and I'm not going to harbor any fugitives at my house. So, you know, let one of my children want to leave the marriage because things are getting rough. I'm going to say, look, you, you better go back to your wife. You can't stay here. You need to go back to your wife. And I don't want to know what's going on either because I want to stay in my daughter-in-law's good graces or my son-in-law's good graces and, and be able to see my grandchildren. And you ain't messing me up. You know, <laughs> you better pray and go get it right with your spouse. I didn't bring you up this way. One woman in the church, I'm a quoter. She says, when a mother babies the husband, she makes, it, it, that makes the wife feel like she doesn't have a place. Or feels less than, and if, here it is, if the husband yields to that, the wife feels alone. That's hard, but it's what God has called us to do. Now, we are called to honor our mother and our father, but they take the back seat to the wife, always. And if we let them take the front seat, then you're you're messing your marriage up. You're going to cause some serious problems. And we need to understand that. Mothers need to stay out the way and allow God to work in their children's lives. And we need to be very careful with this, ladies, because I know you love your sons. Your role when he is married is to pray for him and, and, and spoil the grandkids. <laughs> you get, you know, but that joker, look, he needs to get right with the Lord, you know, and you got to keep, keep it right, okay? Leave his mother and father. 
and the two of them and be joined to his, his, his wife and the two of them should become one flesh. Um, it means, you know, when the Bible talks about cleaving, it means that they are to be stuck together, to adhere to, adhere to one another, you know. Like when, when, you, when you take different layers of wood and you, you put them together and you make a tabletop out of them. You've got three or four different strips of wood, but you can't, you can't pull them apart. You can see the lines in there, but they're sealed now as one, you know. And, and that's what God is calling us to do. So he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. A mystery in the New Testament is something that has been revealed. We understand this now because it's been revealed. Verse 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular, each individual husband in here, so love his own wife, only one woman, as himself. So you don't just love her as a person, but the wife you love as yourself. Everybody else, you love them as an individual person. I love all of you. I love my children. I love my parents. Well, I only have one parent left. I love my, my mother. I love my brothers and sisters in here. But as individuals, I love you. But the wife I have to love as myself. She is a part of me spiritually in the eyes of God. She requires and deserves the highest level of love that can possibly be shown. And then it says, not only that, look, it says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. She doesn't get as many instructions. Respect him, submit to his leadership, pray for him. If he abuses you, let the elders know and the pastors know so we can whip his tail. Otherwise, you don't need as many instructions because the way God's marriage union is supposed to work is that if the husband's doing his role, the wife, by design, she's created to respond to godly leadership and love. She's just going to respond to it. If she's acting out, it's because she may not be, be getting that and she may not even know that that's what she needs or, or wants, but she will respond to it when it's given to her. And so, ladies, we're simple. We just need respect. We respond to respect. Y'all need love. Respect is what makes us feel like, like we're doing something and it makes us even want to give more of it. But you all need love. You all are designed. Um, guys, the, the motions that your wife has... Those things are for a reason, and they are good. And so we don't have time to talk about it anymore because I'm over time. But we're done, guys. You're off the hook. Next week, we're talking about the kids. <laughs> so we made it through. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We do love you and honor you for all that you've done and said to us. Lord, be with us now as we leave this place. Lord, be with us in our cars, our homes, our our jobs, the marketplace, Lord God, guide us, lead us, give us discernment, Lord, protect us in all ways on our families, Lord, we pray. Strengthen your men. Teach us to perform your word, to imitate you, to be like you. Lord, give us wisdom and direction in this, Lord, although we won't figure it out in one day, but Lord, as we, as we surrender to you, Lord, we know and trust in faith that you will continue to mold us into what you want us to be, that not only our wives will be blessed, but then through that, our children and, and this congregation and even all who are around us, Lord God, we love you. We thank you today. And it is in Jesus' name that we say, amen, amen. amen. Let's stand and worship.